from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. This morning, we're ending the first part of the Gospel of, of John. Uh, John's Gospel divides easily into two parts. You've got chapters 1 through 12, uh, typically called the Book of Signs. And then you have the second part, chapters 13 through 21, typically again called the Book of Glory. And, and th- those are the names typically given, you know, sometimes the, the Book of Passion you will see. But that's how John breaks down. And so we're coming to the end of that first section. And we're going to be down in John 12, verse 36 in just a moment. But I want to read to you an excerpt from a journal, a British journal called the Naturalist Miscellany. And it was written in 1799, this particular excerpt by a uh, British man named George Shaw, not the playwright. So if you've heard of George Bernard Shaw, this is not him, different George Shaw. This is the quote. And I want you to think for a minute to see if you can figure out what he is talking about. Quote, Of all the mammalia yet known, it seems the most extraordinary in its confirmation, exhibiting the perfect resemblance of the beak of a duck engrafted on the head of a quadruped. So accurate is the similitude that at first view, it naturally excites the idea of some deceptive preparation by artificial means. On a subject so extraordinary as the present, a degree of skepticism is not only pardonable, but laudable. And I ought perhaps to acknowledge that I almost doubt the testimony of my own eyes with respect to the structure of this animal's beak. Yet no appearance of any deceptive preparation is discovered. End quote. The animal in question is a platypus. This was the first time it was being examined outside of Australia, examined by British scientists, and and George Shaw was one of the first to describe it. And if you read that entire journal article, it's really quite fascinating. Everything that he does to try to prove that it's a fake, even at one point saying that he took the specimen that was brought over, submerged it in water basically to limber it up so he could move its legs to see if any of the parts would fall apart because he's looking at this animal, right, that, that has a, a duck bill, a flat body, a tail of an otter, web feet, a mammal that lays eggs, and he's going, look, this breaks everything that we know (laughs) about science and animals. This can't be real. So he's going through all of this to see, indeed, if it is real. And I love that quote that he says, even though I'm seeing it, I'm not sure that I believe it. When we come to the end of John chapter 12, We come to what is a a bookend of this section. It bookends very nicely with the opening verses found in John 1. And from the very beginning of John 1, I believe it's in verse 7, we are introduced to the word believe. And throughout John's gospel, that word plays a a vitally important role. It is predominant throughout his gospel. 
Right? John, the book of signs, he records seven signs. Why? The signs are recorded so that people will believe. Jesus teaches why? So that people will believe. He keeps calling people to believe. At the same time, there's another parallel track that is running beside the, the track of believe, and it is the track of unbelief. And John draws our attention to that as well. The, the ruling authorities... The leaders, the religious leaders of the day, the common people of the day, they did not believe. They were very much like George Shaw. Though I see it with my own eyes, I am skeptical to believe. As we come to the end of John 12, it, those two parallel tracks forms a question in our minds. What do we do? Or, or maybe a better stated is, how do we understand from a Christocentric view why people don't believe? Gospel of John, up until now, there's those two tracks. I've come that you may believe the people did not believe. Well, beginning in the second part of verse 36 of John 12, we get an answer to that. And this is what God's Word says. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, he has blinded the eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This morning, as we work through this passage, I've titled it The Danger of Unbelief. Because John is going to, in detail, discuss with us why some believe and why some do not. And I just have two points this morning that I want us to focus on, and we're going to spend most of our time on the first one. And the first one is this. The danger of continual unbelief leads to the inability to believe. Danger of continual unbelief leads to the inability to believe. As we look at the second part of verse 36 we note that from 36 down to verse 48, or 43, excuse me, that this is not Jesus 
speaking. This is John providing commentary on what has happened. At the same time, I think before we tackle this this section, we need to remind ourselves that these are Jesus' words, though. They may not be from, quote-unquote, the lips of Jesus, but these are the words of Jesus, right? Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is speaking to us. The Word who became Word and flesh has given us His Word. So this is Jesus speaking. And as he is telling us this, as John is calling our attention to it, he says that Jesus had departed himself. He, he's went out and he, he hid himself both from those who were wanting to install him as king. Right? We're just at, right after the triumphal entry. Here comes the king. We're going to put him up and, and, and make him king. And even though the hour is come, that exact moment of the hour is not right now. So he is not to become king. And he's also being, he's hiding from the ones who want to, to kill him to make an example out of him, to, to right, what, what did the leader say? You know, how much does it benefit us that one man should die for the nation? Save us by this one man dying. So Jesus has gone out and he has hid himself. And in this commentary, while Jesus has hid himself, John begins to address the question that we have in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And we read that. And as you read that, your mind ought to immediately go, right? We keep going back to John 20, verse 30, over and over and over, because verse 37 sounds almost identical, right? Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. We read in verse 37, he had done many signs before them, and they still would not believe. And in the book of signs, John chose seven specifically, right? We've been through them. All the signs have been performed, right? He did the water to wine, and you know what? They did not believe. He he cleansed the temple, and, and they would not believe, He heals the nobleman's son. They would not believe the lame man that we talked about in Sunday school this morning. Go to the pool of Siloam. Go to the pool called Sent by the one who was sent, who is now sending you. Wash in the pool and you will be healed. And they would not believe, right? Because that gives us John chapter 9, one of the most almost comedic sketches in all of the gospel. Are you the man born blind? Yes. How do you see? Because he told me to go sent. I went, I washed, I saw. Are you the man born blind? Still am. But I can see now, and they would not believe. The lame is made to walk and would not believe. The feeding of the 5,000, they would not believe. Lazarus, come out. Hey, guys, go unbind him so he can walk. And they would not believe. We look around and, and, and we read those and we go, why would they not believe? Well, ask yourself this question. Would you have believed? Right? Because we, we, we always read the New Testament. We're super spiritual when we read the New Testament in reverse. Right? I would have believed. I would have gotten out of the boat, and unlike Peter, I would not have sunk in the waves. I would have stood there and looked at the other 12, other 11 disciples in the boat and just been like, come on, water's good. 
Right? I would have been at the cross. I would have been there. Jesus would have walked on sight, said, Gary, and I believe from that moment on. Would you? Would you have believed? John tells us that the people see all these signs and they would not believe. And so we're, we're left now looking back going, why not? Right? Why would they not believe? And then we look around to the day and we look around at people that we know and go, why, why won't the people that we know, why won't they believe? Is the problem Jesus? Is, is, is the problem his, his preaching? Were, were the signs not conclusive enough for them? What's, what's the problem? Because we get right here and we go, man, it sure looks like there is something lacking about Jesus that the people won't believe. And John makes it very clear that the problem is not Jesus. The problem is not him. It's not his preaching. It's not the sign. No, the problem is with the people. Jesus has not failed his mission. And when John quotes Isaiah, those two verses come from Isaiah, he makes it clear that the problem is not Jesus. It's not. It is their unwillingness to believe. And so John quotes these two passages, first Isaiah 53, 1, and then Isaiah 6, 8. And since John quoted them, it would be important for us to look at them for just a moment. Isaiah 53, you probably know better as the opening verse to the chapter of the suffering servant. Right? It begins, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? And then it continues, He grew up like a young plant, like a root of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom they hid their faces, he was despised and was esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It leads to the suffering servant passages where it predicts that Jesus is going to go to the cross at his hour. The hour has come. The cross is right before him. He is going to go and suffer and die for us. We like lambs, we've gone astray. We've run out into the pasture doing whatever we want. Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sins of the world, is going to the cross to fulfill his mission. But that passage doesn't start there. It starts with saying, they do not believe. Who has believed? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? The answer is to everyone. Yet they don't believe. And then he quotes Isaiah 6.10. Now, you may not know Isaiah 6.10, but you know Isaiah 6.8. Right? We've got it on the back of our shirts. We have a few extra if anybody wants one up here, by the way. Right? We, we know Isaiah 6.8, where, where Isaiah is, has, is meeting with God, and, and he's speaking with God, and he says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. 
right? And we love that verse. Put on our shirts. Again, we're super spiritual. Here I am, God, send me. Just don't send me there or there or there or there or there or there. But yeah, send me, God. I'm ready to go. So here's Isaiah. He's just had this encounter with God, and he is saying, send me. And Isaiah, and God says, all right, I'm going to send you, and I'm sending you now, and this is the message I want you to say. Go and say this to the people. And, you, you know, you, you, you were probably, if it was me, be like, I'm ready. I can't wait to live. This is going to be an awesome message, right? This, this is going to be incredible. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. May the heart of this people dull and their hearts heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Huh? You want me, God? Right? I just, I just had this, this vision of you. You touched my lips. I'm a man of unclean lips. You gave me clean lips. I said that I'm here. I'm waiting to go. I, I am, I'm on mission with you, God. I'm going to take your message to wherever you send me. Give me the message. And the message is you want me to go preach to a bunch of people who aren't going to hear. To a bunch of people who aren't going to believe. And God says, yeah. And keep on preaching, by the way. Because after Isaiah 6, we got a whole bunch of other chapters, including Isaiah 53 that we just read. Keep on preaching. Keep on preaching. And, and, and we go, what, what is going on? What is the connection between John 12 and Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53? Well, John understands as he is writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that, that Jesus is fulfilling biblical prophecy. That 700 years earlier, Isaiah wrote those words. And in the hearing of everybody, Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy. Isaiah didn't fail in his mission. His mission went forward. He did exactly what God sent him to do. Jesus is not going to fail on his mission. Jesus is going to do and accomplish exactly what God sent him to do. He's not going to fail. John says, Jesus hasn't failed. The signs haven't failed. Jesus is doing this, and the people refuse to believe because it is fulfilling prophecy spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now, normally, when we see a passage where prophecy is fulfilled, we get all excited. Right again, Sunday school this morning talking about the pool of Siloam. You know, we recognize that what God's word has recorded is, is accurate and true, and we don't need an archaeological find to prove that to us. However, when an archaeological find is discovered and validates the veracity of the Bible, we do take comfort in that. We're like, hey, that's pretty cool. So when we read prophecy being fulfilled, we're like, man, this is really cool. When we read about him fulfilling, Jesus fulfilling the, the Feast of Tabernacles, that, that was awesome. This one, not so much, right? Because what we read then in the middle of these two prophecies is verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. Okay? Wow. Verse 37, they would not believe. Verse 39, they could not believe. We have changed a single letter 
And that one letter places us in this tension between would and could. And while in our minds we think those two are mutually exclusive, either they would not or they could not, what John tells us is, yes, both is correct. They, they would not believe, placing the responsibility squarely on the people. They could not believe, placing the responsibility squarely on God. We're okay with the first part. Not that we want people not to believe, but we're okay with that. It's that second part that we have a hard time with. They would not believe it's your fault. They could not believe, well, does that make it God's fault? How do we understand this tension? Well, two things to consider. First, recognize that there is a tension. Right? We, we can't explain it away. We can't pretend that it doesn't exist. It is absolutely there. And I got bad news for you this morning. It's not going to be resolved this morning. It's not. Volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of books and ink that would fill oceans, if I can borrow, uh, uh, I forgot which hymn writer wrote that. If, if the love of God, thank you. If the oceans were made of ink, I could not write the love of God, I, I believe. It goes something like that on, on this particular subject. There's a tension. Right? And in recognizing that tension, I think Deuteronomy 29 11 gives us a good insight of what we need to know. It says, The secret things belong to Yahweh, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all that the words of this law. And you read that verse, and we are told that there are some truths that God will not allow us to understand. There are some secret things of God that belong to Him. There are. And God is our creator. God as the sovereign does not owe it to us to explain those things. Now, in a world where we don't like to hear that, where we want a justification for every reason, we have to recognize there are some things that we're just not going to know. God is not going to explain them to us. However, at the second part of that verse, he makes it very clear that the things that are revealed belong to us. So He has revealed to us everything that we need to know. Everything that we need to know that God wanted us to know, we know in His Word. And everything that He has revealed to us that He wants us to know is sufficient for us today. It is sufficient for us to lead us to Him, to Jesus Christ, and to salvation. It is sufficient for us to orient our lives around what He has revealed we don't need more than what He has already told us. And you see this so many times. And, and, and you know this is a pet peeve of mine that just irritates me, and I've warned you repeatedly. The first time somebody says, well, the Lord spoke to me and told me, you just say, no, He did not. The old saying goes, if you want to hear the Lord speak, read your Bible out loud. Right? There are some things we just don't know. We don't fully understand how they work together. And, and, and this is one of those. But the second is we need to recognize God's sovereignty and human responsibility are held together in the same hand. They are not diametrically opposed to each other. And we see this in Scripture. 
Right? Perhaps the most well-known example is in Exodus with Pharaoh. You go to Exodus 8.15, it says, But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen. He hardened his heart. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh. And you read that in about eight or nine other places in the passages in Exodus. But then you read Exodus 9.12. But Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God. But wait, I just read... Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now I'm told that God hardened his heart. Yes, absolutely. Now what I find interesting in the way that it is recorded in in Exodus that I I think you have all the instances of Pharaoh hardened his heart before Exodus 9. I think there's one more after Exodus 9 that says Pharaoh hardened his heart. But beginning in verse 9 and following, it's God hardened his heart. Hang on to that for just a few minutes. We will come back to it. We also see this in Romans 1. Romans 1, Paul is writing, and and he makes it very clear in verses 18 through 24. Romans 1, 18 through 24, which I'm hoping to read sometime this morning. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by thy unrighteousness suppress the truth, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For the invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they know God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and the creepy things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lust in their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They suppressed the truth. They didn't believe. They, they, they darkened their own hearts. Therefore, God gave them up. So we see this. Repeat it over and over again in Scripture. That God will harden a person's heart, but it never takes place against the will or without the will of the person. One author put it this way, quote, God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potent causing a morally neutral or even a morally pure being but as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. And that's where the danger comes into place, where God gives us over to our own hardened hearts. Now, you understand this, because I guarantee you I would bet you a lunch, and I would win a lunch for over half a year with everybody being here this morning on Sundays, that you've done this. No, I haven't. Think back to your childhood. Your kid. Your mom. Your dad. Your teacher. Let's go with teacher, because this is my thinking back to childhood, all right? 
the teacher gives you an assignment? No. Okay. Teacher comes up and says, you need to do your assignment. And your head goes back just a little bit. No. Teacher walks back again. Here's a pencil. I need you to do your assignment. No. Teacher walks back a fourth time. I need you to do your assignment. Now you got your head back so far you can see the ceiling. You got your arms crossed and you just kind of twist a little bit like you're digging in your feet. No. Anybody want to buy me lunch? Because we've all done it. And you know as well as I do, the time between the first no and the second no, it'd be easy to say yes. And you go from the second no to the third no, it's a little bit harder. That third no to the fourth no, it's a little bit harder. And you get to the fourth and the fifth no, it almost becomes impossible to say no. Now, the result of that little boy in seventh grade doing that resulting in a beat, and he remembers to this day. I got exactly what I wanted. I absolutely did. Until this day, I cannot get my mom to burn that dictionary. Dictionaries hurt. Right? We, tell me you haven't done that. Where we have moved from we would not to we could not. And when you look at this passage in John 12, that's the danger. Where you move from a place where you are unwilling, where unwilling then becomes you are unable to do that. It starts, I won't believe, I would not believe, I'm not going to believe, and then God finally says, all right, now you can't believe. You might be able to come your, over your own unhardened heart, but you're not going to be able to overcome a heart that has been hardened by God. And you think this morning, well, that doesn't seem very kind and loving. God has given you exactly what you want. He's not forcing it on you. You made that choice. And the danger for us this morning is sometimes we don't realize when we've crossed that line. Right? We, we don't know when we have. But this morning, if you're asking yourself, have I moved from unwilling to unable, based on that question, I would say no. You're not there yet. And so not being there yet means the plea goes out today while you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Because every time you say no to the pull of God, you are one step closer to being given over to the hardness of your own heart. It's very dangerous. And it's a danger we don't want to play with. But secondly, John tells us this morning that the only solution to unbelief is Jesus. The only solution to unbelief is Jesus. With all this going on, we're told some people did believe, including some rulers of, of the Jews. We think of Nicodemus. We think of Joseph of Arimathea. And their belief is rooted in the belief of Jesus, that he is the solution. And, and, and he is. He is the only solution to unbelief. 
And we find ourselves ending this first section of John right back where we started, right? Because the Gospel of John starts that he came saying that he has come so that people may believe. But then again, right after saying God hardened people's heart, that they come to the light and they didn't believe the light. He came to his own and the people would not believe him. But that doesn't stop Jesus. Jesus right here, after all this is going on, verse 44, he cries out, whoever believes in me, he's still saying, believe in me. I'm here so that you can believe in me. I've come so that you can believe in me. This is why I'm here. He reiterates the fact that he didn't come to judge the world because we know that the world already stands condemned. And Jesus is shouting to the people, I'm calling you to come out from under condemnation. Come out from under that, for if you remain in that condemnation, then judgment is going to come, where you will be judged according to that condemnation, and you will remain under it not only now, but for all eternity. Until then, come to me, because if you reject me, you're going to reject the Father. And you're rejecting His mission. You're rejecting His deliverance from sin and condemnation. Stop before you get what you want. Jesus keeps saying, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm the solution to a bunch of people who continue to thumb their nose at the judge. He keeps saying, I'll go be merciful for you if you just come to me. Right? Can you imagine? And again, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise your hand. I don't know if you've done this before. I hope not. But been in a courtroom where, and let's just say it's a traffic ticket, right? And the 20 people before you, the judge goes, I'll dismiss it, I'll dismiss it, I'll dismiss it. And then you get up there and you stand there. You know you're condemned. You know that you you are speeding. You know that what you were doing, like, man, I, I thought, you know, 10, you're mine, fine, I'm nine. I thought it was fine. I don't know why I'm here. So the judge starts talking to you and you just decide you're going to be disrespectful to the judge, just daring the judge to enforce what you've done. And all of a sudden, you know, the judge says, you're guilty. You're shocked because everybody else has been spared, but now you stand condemned because you wouldn't do what you're supposed to do. You wouldn't ask the judge for mercy. And here Jesus is saying, you're going to be judged. You're going to be judged in your condemnation. But even though you're not believing, I am still here today going, hey, come. Believe in me. And I just, I find that so powerful that right here, Jesus is continuing his mission. Continuing to call us out of darkness. Because Jesus did not come to imprison us in the darkness that we are in. He came to shine the light into our darkness and lead us out of it. And that's what we need. We need Jesus' light to shine into our dark hearts, reveal our sins, and then we need Jesus to say, I want you to come out. Don't don't stay there. And that's what Jesus says. Look in verse 46. He says, I have come that, that you believe in me. Right? I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I don't want you to stay there. I mean, it's, you know, we talked about this Wednesday night. This dichotomy, this, this false dichotomy of a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of love in the New Testament. However, in this passage right here, you really see the love of God. With Jesus saying, I know people aren't believing. They're not believing the, sin, the, the signs, but I'm still calling them to come out of the darkness. Come out of the darkness. 
I don't know if assigning desperation to Jesus as a sin or not, or if that would be accurate, but you can all you just you hear him pleading. He says, if you come out of the darkness, I'm going to give you a sure promise in verse 50 that you will have eternal life. I can guarantee you that because the promise is linked to the relationship that I have with the Father, the one who has sent me, so I'm speaking for him. You can have eternal life. And here is the obedient sheep, right? Isaiah 53. We like we have sheep. We have gone astray. We've wandered all. And here we have Jesus as the obedient sheep who has lived in complete obedience to the Father. Complete and perfect obedience to the will of the Father. And Jesus is going to be completely obedient to the Father and to the will of the Father all the way to the cross, where in obedience He will lay down His life for our sins the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus says, look, this is why I was sent. Because I am the only solution to unbelief. Believe in me. That is his plea. A couple weeks ago, uh, I watched... Top Gun Maverick. I know I'm a year late on seeing it, but I did watch it. And there's a scene in the movie that so clearly demonstrates what Jesus is saying. If you've seen the movie, you'll know what scene I'm talking about. If you've not, let me try to explain it to you. Part of the plot is they have to perform a mission that after the pilots drop the bombs, they have to climb at an incredibly steep angle. And, and, and the steepness of the angle combined with the G-forces acting on their bodies is going to cause them or has the potential to cause them to go into something that is called G-lock. G-lock is just the weight is, is forcing down on you so much you, you, you basically pass out. But the precursor to G-lock is tunnel vision. And in the movie, they did an excellent job showing this from the pilot's perspective. Right? They're showing him he's flying, he drops the bomb, and he starts to, to pull up. And all of a sudden, you can see that G-lock coming in on him. And it's a bright, clear, sunny day, beautiful skies. And then all of a sudden, the frame starts coming in. And you see darkness up here, but in the middle, you still see the light. And, and, and the more he climbs, the more he, he goes up with his ascent, that what happens is that darkness keeps coming in, and it reduces the light, and it reduces the light, and it reduces the light, and reduces the light until there's no light. All the darkness has overcome the light. When we get to the end of John 12... The final message of Jesus to the crowds is saying, while you still have the light, believe in the light. Because if you do not believe, your ability to see the light is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller into darkness completely consumes you and now you have no ability to see the light 
and you will remain in darkness. But I have come to call you into the light so that you will not remain in the darkness. Jesus' final plea is come to me before the darkness overtakes you. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.